See, I haven't mentioned any names. So now everybody's happy. But we are going to get rid of Obamacare. I will never stop. One vote. I will never stop. We're going to get rid of Obamacare. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump at his rally in Phoenix on Tuesday night, still upset about the Senate's failure to pass a health care bill, but saying that he wouldn't personally name the holdout voters. Unlike the president, we are going to name names, or at least name check them, on this episode of Pulse Check. And you'll hear from former HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, who reached on the road as she stumped with Save My Care, about the administration's efforts to pull down parts of the ACA. But first, I grab my colleagues Rachna Pradhan and Paul Demko to talk about the latest developments in health policy. You'll hear that conversation in a moment. Just a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, help us keep it going. Rate us, review us, share this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues who care about the healthcare fight. It's still going, even if the Senate is on recess. They will be back soon and dealing with these issues once again. And let me know at ddiamond at politico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter about what you'd like to hear and who you'd like to hear from on Pulse Check coming up. And with that, let's get to Rachna and Paul. I'm joined once again by Politico's Paul Demko. Hello, Paul. Hi, Dan. And Rachna Pradhan. Hi, Dan. Back from watching an eclipse, just like me. We have big bandages over our eyes after staring for a second too long. I was long. going to say I didn't sear my retinas, and so I can still do my job. But we both saw the total eclipse. It was yes. worth traveling for. It absolutely was. We did not travel together, though. You were in no. South Carolina. I was in uh, Missouri. When did you get back? I got back very late on Monday night because the whole travel outside of St. Louis was so cocked up by... Can I say that on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. The eclipse does weird things to people. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in terms of what we say or the amount of travel that people are willing to do. Um, let's, let's get to the topic at hand, or, or really in some ways the topic that we haven't had to talk as much about this month. It's been very quiet. It's been almost 30 days since the Senate health care proposals failed before they went on their recess. Have we seen any movement among holdout or critical senators around the ACA. And Rach, you went out and reported on some of the town halls this month. What What is the feeling out on the trail? And are any of those holdouts, any of the senators like Dean Heller, making any movement? So I was in Colorado um, earlier this month to go to a couple of town halls that Senator Cory Gardner held um, in Colorado. And he he hasn't held a lot of town hall meetings, so as you might imagine, there was a lot of pent-up angst, anger, screaming at the senator for his support of um, of repealing the ACA. So I would say that right now, the the mantra that we kind of keep hearing is how there needs to be a bipartisan effort to deal with Obamacare. Now, what deal it with is sort of remains to be seen, but I think... He was not really carving out a hard position on what it is that he wants to see, other than the fact that we can't do nothing and we need to have a bipartisan plan to deal with this law. The movement around bipartisan initiatives is centering right now on the Senate Help Committee, led by Republican Lamar Alexander, Ranking Murray, 
uh, ranking member, Patty Murray, they are convening a pair of hearings in early September where insurance commissioners and governors will come and talk about what solutions they think are necessary to stabilize the market. Who's coming and and what sorts of measures will they be putting forward? So I can – just earlier today, we had the list of governors that was uh, announced. And I should say we're talking on Wednesday. Yes, September 7th. So we have five governors, three Republicans, two Democrats, um, all of whom I would say do not represent the ideological extremes of their party. They have been willing to um, work with one another on figuring out a way especially to – fix the individual market. All of their states have dealt with issues, um, and certainly it's not limited to those five. And so it'll be interesting. We, we have Bill Haslam from Tennessee, Gary Herbert from Utah, Charlie Baker from Massachusetts. Uh, those are the three Republicans. And then we have Montana's Steve Bullock, from Mont- uh, who's a Democrat, and then Colorado's John Hickenlooper. I think that having those five uh, shows that the Senate Health Committee is serious about trying to come up with something that works and that can get broad buy-in. So it'll it'll be interesting. And then, like you said, the day before, we have insurance commissioners that maybe Paul can speak to this of who is going to be speaking. I have one question for you, though. Are, were you surprised that John Kasich wasn't part of that group, given that he's been working closely with Hickenlooper on crafting some kind of plan? And and he's been so vocal right. throughout about the health care measures he wants to see. that might be why he's not part of that I, group. I think actually that that, right, is kind of what I would say is that, yes, Governor Kasich has been very vocal, but I think he's um, maybe gone so far out on his own that it might – I would say that maybe having him there would not necessarily lead to constructive um, – you know, as constructive of a discussion, maybe because people might feel like he's been so far out there and and maybe other Republicans really wouldn't want um, him to be there. He's kind of, uh, he's a figure that has been polarizing at times. So uh, in a way that I think the other five have not been. Though it is interesting that Hickenlooper, who is term limited, has a growing national profile and rumors that he might want to run for president in 2020, there is some appeal for him in being a guy who can get a bipartisan deal done or play a role in that in healthcare. Well, I think that's an open question what the dynamics are going to be if he wants to run in 2020. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, all the energy is going to be on the far left. Um, and if you're going to, you know, galvanize a national following, that you're going to have to. You're going to have to have that energy behind you. I will make one point about the insurance commissioners. Um, I mean, the thing that's striking about them is they all sound – they're all on the same page. Like whether you're talking to Republicans or Democrats, if you talk to Commissioner McPeak in Tennessee, the favorite commissioner among Republicans, or if you talk to Commissioner Kreidler in Washington, the longest-serving Democratic commissioner, they're all saying – fund the cost-sharing subsidies, stabilize these markets, our people are going to get hurt otherwise. That's an interesting point. And, and I don't cover the insurance market as much as you do, Paul. But when I had a story on the changes in a Senate bill to the small business market, I talked to McPeak in Tennessee, I talked to Al Redmer, a Republican up in Maryland, and I talked to a bunch of Democrats too. And it is striking how apolitical the insurance commissioners tend to be. McPeak, Redmer, they were saying the same things as their liberal counterparts. So 
I don't know if that's specific to this issue or if that's just in the DNA of having that job. I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I think typically there has been more of a partisan divide there. But I think as you're in the situation where we are right now, where your constituents could really be hurt, they could find themselves with no options for getting health insurance. And you're the person who oversees that marketplace in your state. Um, it kind of it, it, it kind of if you're a politician that's going to get your attention and you're going to need to act in a way that is going to protect your constituents. And that's what you're seeing. And you can't escape if you're the commissioner who's not going to Washington, D.C. to serve in Congress. Let's move on to an issue that has been top of mind for those insurance commissioners and that you've tracked, Paul, the cost sharing reductions, these Obamacare subsidies that seems like every month, and it doesn't seem like actually every month, the president has held them out as a negotiating tool to say, if you don't get on my side for passing health reform, for funding infrastructure, for building the border wall, he's used them over and over again as a, as a lever or an attempted lever to get legislative support. Every month, it seems like he can't actually get anyone to come on board and this issue gets kicked down the road. Where are we on the cost sharing reductions? And how close are we to a final not a final solution. How close are we to a final answer <laughs> on how this how this program will be funded? Well, you know, you can't say for sure because this really is President Trump's decision. And as we all know, you know, predicting what he will do is a fool's game. Um, what I will say, though, is we are so late in the cycle now. We are so far towards 2018 that I don't think it much matters anymore, to tell you the truth. Insurers have had to make decisions about pricing. They are making conservative decisions because that's what their actuaries tell them to do. And they're basically pricing in on the assumption that they're not going to get those cost-sharing subsidy payments. So the damage is pretty much done at this point. They're going to be much higher premiums because insurers don't know that they're going to get this money. Though those premiums will be defrayed for on-exchange shoppers with tax credits that will go up basically in lockstep with the higher premiums. Correct. But if you're somebody who's uh, shopping, who do, is do, not eligible for subsidies, who's trying to buy coverage through the individual market, you've already seen your premiums go up like crazy over the last three years. You've seen your deductibles go up like crazy. And now you're going to see another huge bump. And I mean, it's, it's, um, it's the market for individual off-exchange enrollees had declined by 30% this year. The market is in shambles. How big is that market right now? Like 7 million? Oh, I, I think that's about right. I, I can't promise that that's accurate, but I think it's about 40% of the total market. So it's still big, shrinking, and, and an often overlooked issue when we focus on the Obamacare fight and the consequences therein. And you're working on a story here, I think it's fair to say, on this podcast. Yes, exactly. Right now, um, hopefully by the end of this week. Oh, so something to look out for. Stay tuned. We, <laughs> we talk a lot about the exchanges but the insurance markets within the states have a lot of flexibility, or there's the potential for flexibility, and states have been pursuing waivers to change those markets. Raj, this gets to your reporting. How tolerant has the Trump administration been for some of those waiver requests, and is it notably different than what we saw during the Obama days? Well, so um, I take you're asking about Obamacare waivers, so 1332 waivers under the law. Um, so, yeah, we have one that's been approved, um, Alaska's, and they got more than $300 million in federal funding to a commitment for it over five years to help them out with um, a reinsurance program. Um, so have they been 
viewed positively by the Trump administration, yes, everything, every signal they've sent is um, encouraging to states that want to do this. There are several that are either uh, have already filed proposals or are looking to do so, and they're a mix of states politically. So um, all of them kind of recognize that there are challenges with their market that they're trying to fix. Um, how and is and it, just just to yeah. define exactly what these waivers would do and why they are being pursued. So like Iowa, which has had insurance companies pull out of its market, they've issued an emergency request to make changes to their market to prop it up and try and lure insurance companies back in. Right. It's designed to basically keep um, premium increases in check. And in Alaska, it's proven to be effective. So I think that that's significant. And it also helps other states that are looking for the same um, type of model to pursue. Um, the Obama administration didn't get a chance to approve any of these, but I think that's for a whole host of reasons. It's not necessarily political. Uh, it, Alaska didn't get their waiver application submitted until the very end of the Obama administration. And frankly, I think they probably would have done it, but these waivers under the ACA couldn't have taken effect until this year. So it's not like you were going to see a bunch of them in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, so we'll have to see. I think their observers of who are tracking this activity in the States believe that we could see four other states that might get these waivers approved in time for 2018, although that's pretty aggressive time-wise. So Minnesota, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Oregon all have proposals that have been flushed out and submitted. And, and I think, um, you know, on top of keeping premiums down, I think they're also hoping that they might be able to entice some insurers that have left these markets to get back in at the last minute, particularly like in Iowa, where Aetna and, uh, and Wellmark dropped out and they're just left with Medica. And that's with tools like a reinsurance program that benefit the insurance companies that are selling in those states. Roger, you had a story about 10 days ago or so was how the Trump administration is spending millions to shore up Obamacare. And that gets to an issue that I think underpins a lot of what we've already talked about. The president is on national TV ranting about Obamacare failing, but privately, the administration is taking some steps, whether it's helping these troubled markets or whether it's folks within the administration at least pushing to keep the cost-sharing reductions going. Do you feel like there's too much focus on the president's statements, when in reality, there still is pretty significant effort to keep the ACA alive. I think, I don't know if I would say that there's too much attention, only because, so the White House is supportive of HHS's efforts in in the vein of stabilizing markets, uh, using administrative tools they have to do that. That's what they told me when I asked them that for my story. On the other hand, the president's comments about or threats to pull cost-sharing subsidies is having a very real and tangible effect on the future stability of the markets. Paul already talked about how we're seeing insurance companies ask for much larger premium increases because they think that that money could go away or for other reasons like the individual mandate not being enforced. So providing clarity, uh, I don't think there's any disputing that it would help uh, I guess providing clarity and saying we we are going to fund these programs would stabilize the markets even further. Yeah, I mean, I think the president's words really matter. Um, you know, if you're a healthy 28 year old thinking about whether you should 
get coverage or not, and you're hearing President Trump declare Obamacare dead, um, you know, maybe you think, oh, never mind. Um, and if you talk to insurers, you'll hear them say that they're losing healthy people, that people that um, were were re- healthy and young and were enrolled in coverage are dropping it. And that's already a huge problem with these marketplaces, and it's going to make it worse because the only people who are going to stick around, well, not the only people, but too many of the people that are going to stick around are going to be people who are very sick and need a lot of medical care. One thing that the president is saying, and that House Speaker Paul Ryan said in his CNN town hall this week, there are insurers dropping out their counties that aren't covered by Obamacare. And the difference between the political perception and the reality is pretty big here. Paul, where do we stand on on the Bear County issue? You've been covering this. You had a big story in Politico this weekend. Yeah, I mean, there's been at, at one time or another, there have been 81 counties nationwide that have been at risk of not having any insurer. That number has steadily, steadily declined as insurers have filled in um, Bear counties at the behest of state regulators often. Um, places like Ohio and Washington State, the regulators have worked very hard to woo insurers back into these markets. And right now, as we speak, there's exactly one county. Paulding County, Ohio, right on the Indiana border near Fort Wayne with 334 or 344 um, Obamacare customers that does not have an insurer. So that, you know, Paul Ryan misspoke, we'll say. I think that's a kind way of putting it the other night when he said, what, dozens of counties? At best, he was using months old information. At worst, he was being deliberately misleading. Yeah. So that just is not the case. I mean, that I don't want to be Pollyannish here. I mean, there are about 45% of the, the counties nationwide with one insurer. So that is not competition. It's more of a take it or leave it proposition. Um, so it, it's not good. These are mostly rural areas where it's tough. It's tough to put together competitive networks. It's tough to sell affordable plans in those places. But it is a it is an issue, and the, and the competition has dr- dramatically decreased um, over the last couple of years. Isn't that it, the percentage of counties that have only one insurer? Isn't that higher than twenty seventeen? Yes, I'm pretty sure. I don't know that number. I think it was about thirty percent in twenty seventeen, and now we're we're getting close to fifty percent. Yeah, so it's it's trending the wrong way in terms of competition. The argument that supporters of the law make is those are rural counties that are always difficult to insure and that this is an issue that predates the ACA. So not great, but also the population, while it might be near 50% of counties, the actual population is a, is a fraction of that. Exactly right. So we, at the end of July, fair to say we were working around the clock. It was an energetic, exhausting time for everyone in healthcare. We've recaptured some of our our sleep and energy across August. Looking ahead, do you feel like there's going to be appetite for another fight over health care in the Senate? Or have we already made it past the kind of knockdown brawl over the fate of the ACA, at least for this year? I don't think they have any choice. Um, I think they gotta, I think they, they're, they're, if they want to get away from it, if they want to pivot away from it, which I think they probably do, I mean, as, as ugly this, this has been, um, particularly in the Senate, I just don't know how they can. I mean, there's too many problems, um, with these markets and, and, and they're, I just don't see every time I think about what it looks like to, to pivot away and not worry about healthcare. I just, I don't see the, the path. 
So you think it's it's not realistic for them to move back to a knockdown fight, but they are going to have to deal with something related to the markets. I think that's right, yes. And I'm sure there will be some, there, there will be pressure from either side. So you have, even on the Senate Health Committee alone, I mean, you have conservatives on that panel. You know, you have Senator Rand Paul, who is not going to be supportive of what Senator Alexander and Senator Murray are doing. And then you also have um, Senator Bernie Sanders on the other end. I mean, it's not going to be easy for them to, to do what they're doing, but I don't think that any of them are going to take up the repeal mantra anytime soon. Who are you watching? Who's the, the person, the company, the lawmaker that you're watching right now that you think is, is worth keeping an eye on? Well, I mean, I guess the obvious one is Lamar Alexander right now. I mean, a seasoned veteran, highly respected Republican from a red state um, who I think has already been very influential um, in changing the dialogue um, by, you know, his statements. Um, So, you know, he is he is uh, going to do these hearings uh, in starting in September, and we'll, we'll see what becomes of it. But that's certainly who I, I have my eye on right now. And perhaps not a surprise to Pulse Check listeners, he was on the podcast a year ago, and many of the things he said then about the need to work together on a deal and to fix these markets and all he cares about, he said, are his constituents in Tennessee and the premium hikes that they're subjected to. So it may have taken an extra year, but he's basically back where he was heading into the elections. Right. I think it was Senator Alexander that initially said that they need to replace and then repeal, not the other way around. He's been more pragmatist about this whole thing than I would think almost anyone on the Republican side. So I I would just echo what Paul said. I agree. He's definitely one to watch. And then, of course, he has to deal with Senator Patty Murray. And so she's the other one. And that's and that's exactly what I was thinking about, kind of that change in the in the rhetoric that, you know, maybe didn't seem all that significant at the time, I think really did end up being, uh, you know, significant in changing the dialogue and, and how they went about this. Yeah, it all accretes every little shift moves things one way or another. And every conversation that we have moves things forward on the on the pulse check beat. So Paul, <laughs> Rachna, thank you for joining for another roundtable on the Politico Pulse Check podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Kathleen Sebelius is a former Democratic governor in Kansas, insurance commissioner, and Barack Obama's first secretary of HHS. She played a pivotal role in overseeing the ACA and rolling it out that first year. Bumps and all. I reached her on the nationwide Drive for Our Lives bus tour as the bus drove between rallies in Cincinnati and Dayton. What convinced you to join the Drive for Our Lives campaign? Well, I feel strongly that protecting people's health care is important. It's something I have worked on not only um, when I had the honor of serving as secretary, uh, but throughout my career uh, as a governor and as an insurance commissioner. So I... Um, I think that the effort to convince average citizens that their voices matter is an important um, opportunity. I think it it mattered uh, in town hall meetings. Uh, We saw folks show up uh, 
to let their representatives know that they care about health care. And I think that's made a difference uh, so far in the votes that have occurred in Congress. And uh, reminding folks that this battle is a long way from over is seems like a great effort. So when I saw the schedule um, and the fact that they were spending some time in Ohio, which is my home state, uh, I thought it was a great opportunity to come and, and spend some time with the, with the bus tour. There's been a lot of heated rhetoric about this fight over the future of the ACA. Some liberal groups have said that at times millions could die from Obamacare repeal. Conservatives have said that that's unfair and there's there's no grounding in the research. Do you think a campaign like Drive for Our Lives is over the top and contributes to the heated rhetoric here? Absolutely not. I um, I am really shocked when I, I don't remember who was the member of Congress that saw a clip of a member of Congress stand in front of his constituent and says, nobody dies from lack of health care. Just find that to be a very cavalier and totally erroneous statement. I have met with dozens and dozens and dozens of people who can tell chapter and verse about their own situations, uh, which were impacted by not having access to health care or a member of the family. I met with women who used to tell me before the law was passed that they wouldn't even get a mammogram because they knew they couldn't ever afford the treatment if they were diagnosed with cancer. So uh, people's lives are impacted. Virtually any doctor or nurse can talk about patients who seek care for a condition that they would have waited too long in the past uh, because now they know they can pay their bills. And this is a life and death situation for lots of people. Getting an early diagnosis can make a huge amount of difference. Getting access to affordable prescription drugs that they need to take care of a condition, uh, not waiting until you're in a crisis to go to the hospital, that makes a life or death difference to lots of people. The current HHS puts out notices about how the health care law is failing. I get emails about insurance companies that have dropped out of Obamacare, of premium hikes for ACA customers. That's obviously very, very different than when you led HHS. Is that approach by the current HHS sabotaging the Affordable Care Act? Well, unfortunately, I think they have done a lot to sabotage the health care law, and they have a lot of tools to uh, make the law uh, much less viable than it should be. This administration started uh, from day one by pulling down uh, the already paid for advertising that was to run at the end of open enrollment. Uh, 2017. So they had about 10 days to uh, make sure that that final group of individuals, often younger and healthier, who have procrastinated by pulling down the advertising, they made sure that those folks weren't aware that the deadline was coming. That that was step one. And virtually everybody estimates that that may have cut off as many as a million people from enrolling. They told the IRS not to enforce the tax penalty, which again, uh, cause some of the younger, healthier population to purchase coverage because they didn't want to pay a penalty. 
I think that there's no question that Secretary Price and the current political leaders at HHS have consistently tried to create doubt that the law could survive, tried to uh, discourage um, individuals from participating. Uh, I think that their unwillingness at the administration level to make it clear that they will continue to follow the law and pay the cost subsidies owed to insurance companies under the law and essential for lower income individuals to be able to afford their coverage, that uncertainty has caused companies to really question whether they should participate. So absolutely, I think from day one for the last seven months, this administration has consistently tried to undermine the law that is the law of the land, has consistently uh, used their efforts to discourage participation when they know competition actually is the best way to lower costs. So it's had a, I think, a a very um, ironic effect where uh, many of the people that um, could be helped by a more uh, robust marketplace could be helped by having more competition and more choice are actually being hurt by the actions of the administration. HHS Secretary Tom Price has talked consistently about the companies, the insurers that have dropped out of the ACA. When you were HHS Secretary, how involved were you in recruiting insurers to participate in the market? Well, I spent a lot of time, uh, Dan, with insurance executives. I, for eight years in my past life, I was an insurance commissioner at the state level. That's where insurance is regulated. The Affordable Care Act didn't change that. So I knew very well that insurers needed to know what the rules were, needed to know that we wanted to create a platform of certainty for them to participate. And when we would see by preliminary filings or hear from an insurance commissioner that there were companies who didn't know if they would come into the market, I spent time on the phone reaching out to them, talking to them. I remember working closely uh, in a situation in New Hampshire where we were trying to get additional companies to participate in that market and frankly was very pleased to see that um, for 2018 there'll be three companies in New Hampshire. That was not the case several years ago. So I picked up the phone. I had meetings. I had my um, staff and directors very accessible. They traveled to states. They worked with governors. They worked with insurance commissioners. We brought in our former colleagues at the insurance commissioner level a number of times, including to meet with the president, to make sure that they were getting their questions answered, that there any barriers or blockades they saw at the state level that we could help to deal with. So this was a very hands-on effort, knowing that their the company's participation led to competition, which actually was the best way to lower prices for everybody. Last question, and it's a two-parter. You were in this seat as HHS Secretary. What do you think HHS Secretary Price, the administration, needs to do that they're not doing? And just as, as a bonus, 
we're talking about the ACA, the future of this law, understandably, but HHS is a huge agency with so many different priorities. What do you think has been overshadowed, Secretary, in these past number of months as we focused on the ACA? Well, in terms of what they should be doing, now that um, the effort to repeal and replace has failed in the Senate, my hope is that there would be some new emphasis given to the bipartisan for that Chairman Alexander and Senator Patty Murray have announced where they want to look at stabilizing the Affordable Care Act moving forward. I, I would hope that um, that's where the administration focus could be, but certainly uh, follow the law. The law, I think, is um, make it clear to companies that subsidies will be paid at least for the next two years. That would immediately stabilize the market. And frankly, it's the fastest way to lower rates for next year. If that announcement were made, that companies can rely on getting the subsidy payments through 2018, most of the preliminary rates filed by insurance companies would be lowered immediately because they filed rates based on uncertainty. That could be a huge win from the outset. So follow the law and make it clear that it's the law of the land. HHS, you're absolutely right, has huge priorities across the board. And um, it's difficult for me to tell, you know, what exactly is not getting um, the appropriate attention. But my sense is that the vast majority, and I certainly saw this every day, the vast majority of employees at HHS are there because they believe in health and they believe in human services. So the efforts of this administration to undercut um, the outreach, not only on health care with the Affordable Care Act, but to, you know, cancel uh, programs that have been wildly effective in lowering teen pregnancies to uh, have a global health initiatives pulled back because there isn't any support for those going forward to um, have some uncertainty around what's going on with the future funding of, of science um, and have a budget that actually was proposed that would have cut NIH uh, fairly dramatically. Um, all of those send signals uh, from uh, the department that there is not a lot of support or um, uh, initiatives around improving people's lives and improving their health well beyond the Affordable Care Act. And that has to be incredibly discouraging, particularly for a lot of the talented individuals, I'm afraid there could be a huge drain of expertise across agencies in the department if they feel that the department no longer is supportive, if the leadership in the department doesn't want to see uh, progress on the health front uh, on multiple levels, then um, I think they will lose talented employees. And that would be um, very harmful for uh, the American public who doesn't even know uh, that their lives are impacted every day by the incredible people who work there. 
We've written a little bit about some of the career official departures uh, over the past number of months with the administration coming in with a new set of priorities. And you have your own priorities this afternoon as you roll across Ohio. So we will let you get back to your bus tour. Secretary, thank you for joining Pulse Check. Yeah, great to talk to you. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, Rachna Pradhan, Paul Demko, and our producer, Matt Sobosinski. If you like Pulse Check, keep it going. Let us know. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com, at ddiamond on Twitter. Please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app that helps new listeners discover us. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.